0: Good morning again, and thank you, Gabe, for that prayer. Just as a brief reminder, this Tuesday here in the auditorium, or actually I think we're having a classroom, it's going to be a time of prayer. So if you would uh, be interested Tuesday evening to come and pray for our community and for our nation, Uh, it's time very well spent, and we are very much in need of prayer all over the place. So you may remember an old TV show. Maybe not. They've taken it off the air, and probably for good reason, One called All in the Family. And there was this one scene, I remember seeing it as a kid, where Archie's son-in-law, Michael, and his wife, Gloria, are both in the kitchen. Michael is sitting at a table eating a sandwich, and Gloria is baking cookies, but she's troubled. And she looks at Michael and says, Michael, do you love me? Yep, he says, between bites as he's eating his sandwich. Again, sincerely, she looks at him. He can tell she has a serious look in her eye. She said, would you give up your life for me, she asks. And he looks at her sincerely and says, right after I finish the sandwich. (laughs) See, I think that attitude Michael has often demonstrates how you and I feel about sacrifice. Something that, yeah, we're willing to verbally acknowledge, we're willing to say it, but when it comes right down to it, are you actually willing to give up the power, the control, and the convenience that it takes in order to make a sacrifice? It's a word that we don't often use. Sacrifice doesn't often work with what we sincerely want. And whatever happened to it, this question was one that appeared in an article in Christianity Today, and as the uh, the author of that article was churning through that question, he said this, sacrifice is a word a power-hungry church just doesn't understand. A church that cares about power, the power of a large membership, power in the world, political power, television power, Or persuasive opinion power doesn't know the principle of sacrifice. Far too many Christians have neglected and even repudiated the example of Jesus Christ who avoided coercion in favor of quiet persuasion and whose method of acting was his willingness to die for those who would not die. When Christianity seeks to arrogate power to enforce its righteous principles upon the whole world, It is in no way dying. This is in no way sacrifice. We are coming into a season of sacrifice when we celebrate that which God sacrificed for us. The Son of the Father and the Son's own life. And what I want to talk about this morning is what can I sacrifice for Christ and not only will we go into the what, but also the how do we sacrifice and why do we sacrifice for Christ. We're departing from the book of First Samuel as we begin our march to Resurrection Day. So this morning we'll be in the book of Mark. We'll actually look at Mark chapter 14, reading verses 1 through 11. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Mark, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why has the ointment, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You may be seated. So again this morning, we're beginning our march towards the resurrection. One of, if not the most sacred holidays in Christianity. And we're going to walk alongside these disciples of Christ who would soon be losing their leader. They didn't even realize fully, as we'll see, what was going to happen. But in the process of this, the theme is going to be Disciples, you need to stay persistent no matter what turmoil may be coming your way. As a matter of fact, the theme that we're going to be adopting throughout this series is keep calm and stay faithful. There's been a a resurgence of that poster. It came out uh, in the time of World War II in England just before the war broke out. As a matter of fact, they were anticipating there being giant air raids and huge loss of human life. So to prepare the people for this, they began this poster campaign. The first two weren't as popular as the third one. But the third one gained a lot of popularity. It resonated with the people. It was this message of staying calm. Stay calm and carry on. A similar theme was given to these disciples. Keep calm, but with a little bit of a twist. Keep calm, and just because I'm going to be leaving you, stay faithful. Those disciples had no idea what they were going to be called on to sacrifice. And as you'll see the sworn there, they're very confused about what it means to partake in Christ's mission. So this morning, we're going to talk about the essential sacrifices for Christ in the time that we have. So I want to talk about our subject this morning this way. And we'll go through the narrative. And first, we'll see these, we'll see these three two characters, and then we'll bring it back to us. First, we see the woman. She understood Christ's mission much more than these other disciples who had been walking with Christ all this time did. Then we'll see the disciples misunderstanding the mission of Christ. And then finally, we'll talk about What we must faithfully sacrifice for the mission of Christ. So let's first of all talk about this woman because she's the one in the story that gets it. And Mark is giving us this woman as an example, as someone not just willing to sacrifice, but to sacrifice extravagantly for Jesus Christ. And it starts out with this increasing hostility between the religious leaders and Christ, he's confronted the ruling religious leaders. And they've heard him calling himself God, and they've heard him forgiving sins, and that is not settling well with them because they don't believe he's God, and therefore he's committing blasphemy. But he's gaining popularity with the people, so they're not quite sure how to confront him and, and how to take him out. Now, Christ is staying out of Jerusalem at this time. He's in this house of someone else who was rejected, Simon the leper. And during the course of this meal that they're having together with the disciples and this woman, um, things happen that are highly irregular. Because this woman, she she just kind of barges in. She's not invited. She does something completely unexpected towards someone who's not a guest in her house. And then she gives this extraordinary gift. I want to make some observations about this gift. It's an ointment that she has in this this jar. And and notice that it's given plentifully. Uh, Notice in verse 3, she broke this alabaster flask. It would have looked something like this. Breaking the thin neck off in order to get the contents out of it. Now, she used it all. She had no intention of having anything left over that she was going to put back in that flask. So so she gave it all to the point where it was unusable. So it was this plentiful gift, and it wasn't just plentiful, it was also pure. It says there in verse 3, it was pure nard. It was this substance that came from a, a root of a plant in India. It wasn't watered down in any way. It was very aromatic. And then finally, it was also precious. In verse 5, it says, it could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, most of us haven't spent a denarii on anything lately. But um, if we were to look back in Mark chapter 6, verse 37, it says that 200 denarii would have been enough to feed 5,000 people. This would have been a year's wages. Now, some in the group among christ's disciples they became indignant at this seeing this costly gift that was given and they're saying well this is a huge waste we could help the poor by selling that Uh, and they, they didn't say it but they're thinking you foolish woman why did you do this jesus said no way You disciples are the ones that you don't get what's going on. This woman is taking advantage of an opportunity, and if you all would see what was truly happening around you, you would get why she's doing this. But you don't get it. And in this, Jesus is no way diminishing the needs of the poor. As a matter of fact, earlier in the book, he instructed a rich man to give all he had to the poor. But she fully understood what he was there to do. And part of his mission was going to be to die for mankind. So she's ritualistically preparing his body for the burial that was to come. And this was not what the disciples wanted. Uh, They still believed there was going to be some kind of a military campaign. You see, the area they lived in had been under Roman occupation for a long time, and they were sick of it. And they wanted to militarily take over the land that they believed God had given them. And this is what they thought was going to transpire. So they're still waiting for that, that takeover. They would not accept the way she did that his mission was to come And to suffer and to die. So then let's consider these disciples because they completely misunderstood Christ's mission. Uh, And we partially see it here in this passage. But all through the book of Mark, Jesus tells them again and again and again. Look, I'm going to die and then I'll be resurrected from the dead. I'm going to die, then I'll be resurrected from the dead. And he tells them this again and again. And I want to go through a couple of those passages in Mark chapter 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Notice it took time to say, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is a tough rebuke. It's not a good idea to rebuke God, as Peter attempted to do. He said, Whatever, Jesus, whatever. This is not going to happen. He thought in some way it was because they were going to be overtaken, they wouldn't fight back. He said, No, 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 we will fight back. And then Jesus tells Peter, this idea of yours is coming from Satan himself. This is not the plan of God. Then Jesus calls them to take up their cross. Now, before someone underwent a Roman crucifixion, they would take up a cross on their shoulder. They would carry it around the city. This was one last statement to say that Rome was right And I was wrong. What Jesus is saying here is, You will take up your cross and you will follow me. And that'll be a statement saying, The way you have lived was wrong, and the way of Christ is right. Carrying the cross of Christ means to confess you're submitting to his way and not your own. And this is the way of suffering. But again, in Mark chapter 9, listen to what happens. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. And isn't this just like us? And we're afraid to ask. Maybe he expects us to know. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. See, they were under the impression, again, that Christ's kingdom was about to be set up. He would be the king. And the rest of them were thinking, okay, where are we going to fall in the lineup? You know, almost like when someone becomes president, they're selecting their cabinet members. Who's going to be the best? Who's going to be closest to the king? So much so that they couldn't even hear what it was he was saying to them. And then finally, in Mark chapter 10... And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. They don't get it. In all likelihood, James and John, they thought they were going to be participating in some kind of battle with Jesus He would fight for his kingdom. And what they wanted was greatness and status. And look at the response of Jesus. You don't know what you're asking. So that led up to this moment in the house. And again, Jesus made a statement. He should have clued them to the nature of his mission. In verses 8 and 9, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. Women were not ordinarily esteemed. They were looked down on. They were second-class citizens at this time in history. And this is turning convention on its head because she's the one that will be remembered for her sacrifice. These guys are just going to be remembered for their confusion. They don't get it. And then in this sharp contrast... This passage closes with Judas. Not only will he not sacrifice for Christ, but doesn't fully get who he is, and is going to sell him out to get money from those in charge, those who want to kill him. See, this is the nature of a disciple. The one who is most honored in this story is the woman. She never speaks, never argues what position she's going to have in the kingdom, and she gets more honor than the rest of these disciples and she gave this extravagant sacrifice. But why? See, why was it she was able to see what these disciples did not? Because part of the problem with these disciples is they had already made up their minds about what Jesus was going to do, and they weren't even listening to what he was saying. I'm guilty of this. When you, I've, I've got something stuck in my head, I think this is the way it is, this is the way it's going to be. And when someone repeatedly tries to tell me it's not going to be that way, typically my wife, it's frustrating for her because I've already got it locked in my head, and I'm totally wrong, and I've missed some really important piece of information. See, they thought the only way Jesus' mission was going to work was a military takeover from the Romans. So, when Jesus told them and told them and told them, it is not going to work that way, they were blinded by their own preconceived ideas to see it. So, they completely miss the obvious. This is an interesting phenomenon that happens with it's interesting, it's all the men in here that are doing this, which is common. Uh, There's a book actually that came out called Did You Spot the Gorilla? And there was a psychologist that did an experiment that I think gives us a clue into what's happening here. There was volunteers who uh, were—they watched a 30-second video, these volunteers, of two teams playing basketball. And they were asked to count the number of times the teams passed the ball. But what they weren't told was that halfway through the video, a man dressed in a gorilla suit would run onto the court, stand in front of the camera, beat his chest. And amazingly, only a few people actually saw the gorilla run onto the court. They were so zeroed in to everything else going on around them, they couldn't see it. There's also a myth kind of floating around out there. And I've only heard excerpts and bits and pieces that when those first Spanish galleons began exploring the world and coming to South America and coming to Australia, that those who lived in that country couldn't see them. Because nowhere in their frame of reference was there a ship that came up over the horizon such that they would even notice that it was there. That same psychologist said that most people go through life so focused on the immediate task at hand they completely miss what he calls guerrilla opportunities. Because I think this is a mission that we Americans have a lot of trouble accepting the mission that Christ has called us to, to sacrifice, to suffer. Because I really believe that we Americans believe that we are deservedly blessed and wealthy and continue to have larger houses because we are just doing Christianity a little bit better than other people. There was another article that came out calling attention to the fact that American homes are a lot bigger than they used to be. There was a a member of a European business school that said, despite a major upscaling of single-family houses since 1980, um, satisfaction has remained only steady. He said, it's a classic keeping up with the Joneses type report about how we Americans are building bigger homes than ever, and our happiness tends to be inversely proportionate to the square footage of our new real estate. As usual, the dynamics of comparison judgment, and self-justification are at play. He continues to say, to be clear, having more spaces generally lead to people saying they're more pleased with their home. But the problem is this, that satisfaction often doesn't last even if bigger homes pop up nearby. If I bought a house to feel like I'm the king of my neighborhood, but a new king arises, it makes me feel very bad about my house. It is an unfulfilling cycle of one-upmanship. How many other arenas does this pop up in? Cars, trips, clothes. Where I believe we can get so blinded by the culture that's all around us, like these disciples who are caught up in their own idea of the way things are, that we miss this opportunity that this woman could so clearly see. That this extravagant sacrifice that she was giving was so much more worth it. Because sacrifice can be so unappealing because we've been blinded by a culture that says it's not worth it. So let's bring this to us. We must faithfully sacrifice for Christ's mission. It's it's part of our calling. And I realize too that when we start talking about giving things up, the the guilt meter kind of starts going like this. It's not my goal to make anyone feel guilty. And for the record, I have no idea what anyone at First Baptist Church gives. I make it a point not to know. It's none of my business. And I also don't want you to think that you should be sacrificing something that you shouldn't. Because there are things that you are not called to sacrifice. You're not called to sacrifice your family or your marriage for the cause of Christ. To be a good Christian is to be good at being a husband and loving your children well. Don't sacrifice something you shouldn't. I remember whenever I was a, a resident assistant in college, I was an RA and we had an international student from Jamaica come in, Colin, and he came in and he had very little, he had, he had one suitcase. He said, you know, I didn't bring my pillow, he didn't have my, didn't have any towels, no bedding, no anything, and yeah, this guy, he had really given up a lot to get to the states and get an education. And I remember standing with him in the dorm room, he put the suitcase up on the bed, flipped open the top, and there were two bottles of rum sitting there. (laughs) And I'll never forget him grabbing those bottles of rum, he he tucked them under each arm and said, got to have my rum on. I'll never forget that line. (laughs) Don't sacrifice space in your life for something that really ought to be there. That's not what I mean. That's... Not a great way to sacrifice, but there are things essential to sacrifice for Christ. And first of all, you need to be able to sacrifice time. Not all of it, but there has to be a sacrifice of time. Uh, You know, time is kind of like real estate, and they're they're not making any more of it. You only have so much. It's limited. The woman in the story stopped what she was doing to be with Christ. And God does not demand it all. He doesn't demand all of your time. There are important people you need to be spending time with. There's important things that you need to be doing. I would argue also that giving up the right amount of time for the Lord will make you better at spending time on everything else. This means making time for essential spiritual disciplines. Those times for prayer, those times to be here. By the way, for those of you online, we're very much looking forward to you getting back as soon as you can. Um, There's nothing like being with the body of Christ. And it's a sacrifice. It takes time to get here. It takes time to get ready. And time to pray should be at the top of the list, and it's not easy. but prayer is also one of the greatest demonstrations of our faith. Because when we pray, we are showing, perhaps in no other way, how we are depending upon God. Giving up time to be with God's people, time to worship. Being a disciple of Christ is going to take time. It's not only going to take time, it's going to take your talents. Your talents. It's really hard even, in, in some sense, to call it a sacrifice. And, and I don't want you to think that what you do from 9 to 5 doesn't count. You know, like, somehow, well, that's not fair, Chad. You're sort of, of this professional Christian, so, so you know, your job is, is also giving God your time. Well, you know, you know, what you're doing 9 to 5 is also time you're give, and talents you're giving to God. Don't think that what you do from 9 to 5 is just divorced from what you give to the Lord, Because whatever we're doing, we're called to do it for the glory of God. So don't separate the two of those things. I'd also, though, love to see you using your talents um, specifically here for the body of Christ. Um, We can help you figure out a way to serve. And if you're like, well, I'm just not sure, well, just try some stuff. Try greeting. And even as you're here, Reach out to the people around you. Say hello to somebody that you don't know. Be friendly. Use what talents God has given you. And maybe in some creative way, we could use your talents here at our church in ways that we don't even understand yet. But maybe you do see a way. Help us. Help us figure something out. And then finally, sacrifice your treasure. Sacrifice your treasure. God called us to give back Part of that which he is given. Sometimes the question is, well, how much? Well, we have, in the guidance in the Old Testament would say 10%. 10%. Generally speaking, that was the amount God was happy with. We get to the New Testament, though, and it says, well, you should really give until you can't be cheerful about it anymore. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. So the manner in which you give is as important as what you give. It reminds me of a story of a little girl... Her mom had given her a a $1 bill and a quarter and said, you should give one of those in church today. She said, I don't care which one you choose to give. It's entirely up to you. So on the way home, she asked the daughter, well, what did you decide to give? And the daughter said, well, at first I was going to give the dollar. But she said, the man behind the pulpit said, God loves a cheerful giver, so I felt like I would be much more cheerful if I gave the quarter instead. And I want to thank you for your generosity. This is a generous church, and I appreciate the giving of this church. As a matter of fact, today is the day when we do uh, take up an elder fund. We'll be taking that up in the back. We always do that the Sunday after communion. Typically, Glenn is the one that holds the... And Glenn, if you'd hold up your hand right over there. Glenn is the... He's the man that holds the plate in which you place the elder fund. This is how we help out families that are in need here at our church so we would love it if you're able to give to that and i we've also we've also been blessed you know we made budget last year and we'd raised the budget from the year before so i praise god for that and i praise i want to give you credit for your willingness to give you're giving to the lord and we are responsible to use that money for however god would see fit So, thank you for being generous. And I pray that you're giving cheerfully as you're giving. So, putting this all together, sacrifice your time, your talent, and your treasures. Three things God is asking you to give and to use in His service. I want to close with uh, this story told by a church leader named Gordon McDonald. He was talking about how God had transformed him from from seeing giving as just sort of an institutional obligation. He said he used to see it that way. But then he goes on to say it changed when he was in South Africa into being a cheerful giver. He said, the process began when my wife, Gal, and I made a mission trip to West Africa. On the first day of our visit, we joined a large crowd. He said they were desperately poor Christians that had gathered together to worship. As they got closer to the church, he saw almost every person was carrying something. Some of them were carrying cages of chickens, some baskets of yams, and others were turned around bags of eggs or bowls of, uh, it's called cassava paste or cassava paste. And he asked, well, why are they bringing all this stuff? He was still asking one of the hosts and the host just said to watch so almost every person in that african congregation brought something again all those items he said i saw that giving in that process of being in that church he saw that giving whether yams or dollars is not optional for christ followers because all of those items were going to be the offering those people were going to give that day and he said that soon after the worship began The moment came when everyone stood and poured into the aisles. He said they were singing, they were clapping. He said they were shouting. And they began moving forward, each in turn bringing whatever they had into a space in the front. He said, then I got it. He said, this was offering time in the West African church. He said the chickens would help get a tiny business started, a farm. The yams and the eggs could be sold in the marketplace to help the needy. The cassava paste would guarantee someone wouldn't go hungry that night. He said he was captivated. He said he'd never seen a joyful offering before. Then he said, obviously my keep my money under the radar policy would not have worked in that West African church. Those African believers, although they never knew it, had moved me. He said, I began to understand that giving, whether yams or dollars was not an option for Christ followers. And he said, rather, this is a tenor of one's whole life. Let's adopt that attitude of sacrifice. Let's don't be afraid to give what God has given to us. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, as we go into this new season of the year where we are walking towards you as we consider the sacrifice that you made for us as we consider the sacrifice that you have called us to make give us a deeper understanding of the kingdom that's all around us that if we could see it in its full glory lord no doubt we would drop everything we had we'd be like that man in the field who was digging and saw a treasure and he knew it was so valuable he sold everything he had to buy that field lord let us have that kind of an attitude And I pray that we would also, in a deeper way, understand, Lord Jesus, what you gave up for us, leaving the glory of heaven and the presence of your Father to be here, to be present, to love us in a way that only you could by giving your life to be reconciled to the Father. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, who's even questioning, were they they to die today, if they would be in your presence or not? God, I pray that today would be the day that they would Take a moment and come up after the service and speak with myself or another elder so that they could have an assurance that if they were to die, they would be with you. We ask this all in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless and peace to you. Have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you soon.